0: Welcome to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway? My name is Julie.
1: My name is Connor.
0: And today on our podcast, we have Professor Dr. Craig Allen of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln School of Natural Resources. Uh, Dr. Allen received his PhD from the University of Florida and led the South Carolina Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit at Clemson University. Um, And then Dr. Allen arrived at UNL in 2004 to found Nebraska's Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit where he worked until 2019 before founding and becoming the director of the Center for Resilience in Agricultural Working Landscapes, or CRAWL. Dr. Allen was also the principal investigator of the National Science Foundation IGER grant, focused on the topic of resilience and adaptive governance and stress watersheds before applying for and being awarded with a network of other Copi's a five-year $3 million grant to establish a National Research Traineeship or NRT program here at UNL, which Connor and I are uh, part of for our graduate training. He was also recently awarded an NSF Dynamics of Integrated Socio-Environmental Systems or DICE's grant. Um, and Connor will do the rest of the introduction.
1: Well, in addition to all that stuff going on at UNL, Dr. Allen has also been a member of the Resilience Alliance since 2001, and he sits on their board of directors and even was recently appointed the co-editor-in-chief of the scientific journal, Ecology and Society. Dr. Allen was also recently appointed as a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science the world's largest general scientific society. His research interests include understanding the links between land use, or land cover change, biological invasions and extinctions he's been formative in the development and dissemination of the ideas of panarchy and other resilience concepts something we talk about just a little bit on this podcast Julie. just a bit
0: so dr allen thank you for being on the podcast
1: oh thank you for having me
0: absolutely so can you give our listeners sort of a brief recap of your research interests
2: In a very general sense, I'm I'm interested in all things resilience. I'm I'm interested in developing resilience theory and panarchy um, and discontinuity theory. Uh, I think applied ecology needs basic ecology to provide recognition of patterns so that all our management isn't idiosyncratic. But also because my background with with, uh, wildlife degrees. I'm interested in application and how we quantify resilience if we can and where resilience concepts can help improve the management of natural resources. So taking the concept
1: from theory
2: to practice.
1: Very interesting. So Dr. Allen, we often ask our guests on the interview segments of this podcast about ecological resilience. And specifically, we start by asking, how would you define ecological resilience?
2: I'll I'll give you a really short answer and then explain it a a slight bit. So, so for me, resilience, the definition I use falls back to the original resilience uh, definition of C.S. Holling in 1973, and he coined the term ecological resilience. Ecological resilience is a measure of the amount of disturbance a system can absorb uh, before a threshold is reached and the system collapses and reorganizes into an alternative state. An example of that would be a a grassland uh, in the absence of structuring processes such as fire, uh, converting to woodland over time. So those same spot of land in in, uh, Great Plains, for example, can exist either as a grassland or woodland, or we're talking like the Sandhills, other alternative states are possible too. For example, moving dune fields. Now, most people, however, um, use a slightly different definition of resilience. It's a little bit easier to understand and you see it in in lay discourse all the time. That definition of resilience really comes down to bounce back. And so in, in that characterization of resilience, resilience is simply the amount of time it takes for a system to return back to its, quote, normal function following a disturbance. I have a couple problems with that definition, really two main problems. One is that the systems we manage and and live in and work in are non-stationary, they're changing all the time. So if you're going to bounce back, it's far from trivial to know what to bounce back to. Think of some of our hurricane disasters that have affected um, swaths of, of urban cities that Um, one would argue are not in greatly desirable conditions, poor infrastructure, um, just in need of revitalization. In a case like that, bounce back doesn't make any sense. The other critical problem for um, the idea of simply bounce back as resilience is it's a little dangerous to think of that for one, the, if you take that to the extreme, it means we can disturb anywhere, any system that we manage or live in. And it's simply a matter of time before it returns. Mm-hmm. And we know that's not the case. Many systems, most systems to our knowledge or all systems have a critical tipping point. You disturb it beyond that tipping point and that collapses and reorganize it, reorganizes into an alternative stable state. So my definition of Ecological Resilience or SES, Social Ecological Resilience, includes bounce back because that captures most of the dynamics. But you have to have a little more than that. You need to deal with the non-linearities, the ability for collapse, etc. cetera. Uh, the other major difference between those two things, uh, bounce back and ecological resilience, is bounce back really doesn't have an underlying theory To provide us broader inference it's simply a measure if you're talking about animal populations it would be little r the rate of increase in the population ecological resilience theory has a huge body of theory dealing with traps and transformation and and cross-scale organization of systems and on and on so it's a it's a really vital really lively really fast
0: developing area of theory yeah yeah, it's nice to hear you. So many of the terms you're using are, are terms we've tried to cover in depth in some of our content episodes here. So, you know, our listeners will recognize some of the phrases you're using in, in the adaptive cycle and in our alternative stable states episodes. And it's nice to sort of hear that incorporated into some of those bounce back ideas. It's really nice to hear that. Um, how did you first hear or learn about ecological resilience? What was your introduction to this field and this theory? So I sh- certainly didn't come in thinking I'd be a resilience scholar. Right.
2: I started a master's degree, which um, I did in Texas, um, and there's the impact of fire ants on everything. Uh, the interesting thing about fire ants, though, is that they have enormous ecological impacts. These little bugs, tiny, are changing entire ecological systems from um, by changing germination success of plants. Um, decimating some insect communities, and even killing things like deer fawns and alligators. Um, So that got me a touch of thinking about ecosystems and how they're organized and how they're assembled, sort of big picture questions. And my advisors there, um, that was at Texas Tech, um, encouraged me to think about those things. I ended up going to Florida where my PhD was, or my assistantship was to model all the vertebrate species um, in the state at a 30 meter resolution. Wow. working for that for some time, I wasn't sure there was really a dissertation into a, a mapping program for species. I ended up taking Buzz Hollings class, cross scale ecology class one day. It really <laughs> um, resonated with me and we did a class project that ended up being uh, one of my first publications on this and um i picked up buzz holling as a co-advisor and and then did my entire dissertation working with buzz i also did a a short postdoc with holling before moving out to
1: clemson so it sounds like dr holling was a pretty heavy influence on your resilience work
2: absolutely and the and and the father of resilience theory if you will Mm -hmm. as as well Mm -hmm. as father of adaptive management so um Absolutely, a, a, a big influence and, and, and encouraged. Um, one thing Buzz Holling did always was encourage students to think way outside the box and speculate and think boldly. He, he believed that much of science was overly conservative and that we needed to break away from that and, and be a little more bold and novel.
1: So, as a follow up, Dr. Allen, is that one of the reasons that uh, the Resilience Alliance was originally founded was to, to try and promote some of these ideas and and be bold, as you said, uh, in, in the sector.
0: Yeah, and what it, were those early days like of the of the organization? Those are interesting
2: times because when, when Holling originally put out his idea in 1973, mm-hmm. it sort of sat stagnant. <clears throat> Holling always thought that um Science is so conservative that it takes 30 years for a good idea to be picked up. And that's exactly how long it took for resilience. So there is an attack by ecologists in the 80s um, demonstrating that there's no alternative states in nature. The fact is, in the 80s, there weren't long term di- time series to right. actually demonstrate that case. So the idea sort of percolated in the back. Then by the ni- late 1990s, um, Lance. Gunderson and Buzz Hauling, Lance Gunderson was working as a postdoc in the lab at the time, he was a friend of mine, and colleagues, thought about forming the Resilience Alliance, and originally it was called the Resilience Network, with MacArthur Foundation funding. And the idea was, yes, to talk about resilience concepts, but really to talk about these complex concepts Across disciplines, so their original meetings, the Resilience Alliance includes included social scientists, and including included economists and others, because the idea was that these are ideas that apply to complex adaptive systems that consists of both nature, but also people, and economy is important as well, and there had to be integration of these things. So that was early on, early work really considering link social Ecological systems, rather than just focusing on the ecosystem
1: aspect. So there's a definitely a convergence of different disciplines there to try and solve some of these complex problems.
0: Yeah, and sort of on that uh, topic a bit, or you know, going off into the different branches of ecology and other fields, we wanted to talk a little bit with you about your relation or the relationship between invasive species and invasive species ecology with resilience and sort of what you see as uh the linkages there and the way that that influenced some of your early thinking like with your fire ant work and then moving from that when you came to nebraska obviously and as we've talked about pretty extensively on this podcast eastern red cedar so can you speak a little bit about invasive species and that connection there
2: well with invasive species and and i've worked with all kinds of invasive species but really um did lots of work when fire ants and wildlife. And, and as stated, you know the, the impact of fire ants is so large that you realize little things like this can have huge ecosystem impacts. In fact, that's one aspect of panarchy, the idea that small things can actually scale up and cause the destruction of a system. So things like insect outbreaks. This is something Holling originally noted with spruce budworm in um, British Columbia. So this sort of outsized impact by these small things it really makes you think about how systems are organized. By the time I got to Florida, I was thinking um, I was still working with fire ants, but I also started working with a variety of other uh, invasive species and doing empirical analyses, predicting vertebrate invasions. And what we found was, uh, as a corollary of of resilience theory, is the idea that there's um, multi and cross-scale structure in ecosystems. What we found was that invasions and extinctions were actually non-random, non-randomly distributed in terms of sort of the scaling structure of systems, and that that sort of non-random pattern held up, which meant that we had a little generality in understanding how ecological systems are organized and how um, invasive species can incorporate into um, new ecological systems.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you see some, uh, or I guess, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is true, but do you see Eastern Red Cedar in Nebraska because it is such a clear example of the conversion of a grassland to a woodland where it's very visually, I think, easy for some people to understand as a first introduction to alternative stable state theory. Do you think that this sort of, do you think that invasive species provide a great teaching um, opportunity for resilience and resilience theory? I,
2: I do for those very reasons that, mm-hmm. that some of these species have outsized impacts yeah. and, and really reorganized systems. And that's red cedar is, is um, an, a very good illustration because it's so simple. It's a a single species coming in, you know, behind it is probably a complex species that will come in afterwards. But at at the leading edge, it's definitely, uh, you know, driven simply by a, a very simple set of relationships, you know, the grassland, fire, and cedar and cedar propagules so it's it is an easy one to communicate to people there's some other good examples too that um, also include invasive species to some extent think of the platte river basin which was originally a a braided stream that got scoured by snowmelt and snowmelt kept the uh, sandbars in the middle the middle of the river open and open sandbars are critical for a couple of endangered species that fall within the U.S. E.S.A. includes terns, plovers, and also uh, whooping and sandhill cranes use these, these um, sandbars. But we dammed the river and we've, we've um, harnessed it for um, irrigation and for hydroelectric power. And so the spring surges stopped. And what happened when that stopped is that the uh, scouring flows stopped. Invasive species took over those islands Mostly herbaceous things, and then um, more recently, around 2004 and five, a uh, uh, quite a nasty, aggressive invasive fragmites, uh, mm. uh, common reed, took over. And then after the herbaceous species come in, then you get cottonwoods invading these islands too. So you have a classic case of hysteresis because now we want to restore the river, putting a pulsing flow, which has been done by a by a flood doesn't move the sand because it's the islands are armored. To to break that system now that's positively reinforcing into a, in an undesirable state, at least for terns and plovers, we have to heavily manage. So we either manage individual sandbars into perpetuity or we break the hysteresis, which means removing trees and then removing vegetation and then plowing to break the roots that hold the sand together and then restoring pulse and flows to a very high bar to pass to restore the river, at least to natural processes.
0: Extremely. Yeah, I I think that's such a nice illustration of the way that alternative stable states is a really great introduction to this area of research, this body of research. And I think it was uh, one of the first introductions I had to this sort of work in undergrad. And so... I think that's the great illustration of that. Another great
2: example in the Great Plains, of course, is and and for sort of more social ecological systems that are a little little heavier perhaps mm. on the on the social side is agricultural landscapes. And and of course a classic sure. case out here in the Great Plains is a dust bowl, which ah. is the same kind of collapse, you know, slowly increasing drought and slowly increasing more and more plowed area and then you just hit a limit and, and the uh, soil started moving. Also illustrates the opposite side of resilience, which is the idea of transformation, the idea of uh, breaking the resilience of systems in undesirable states, mm-hmm. and then purposely through a human agency, fostering that system back to its more desirable
0: state. Right, resilience is not always a great quality for a system.
1: Well, the des- dust bowl, uh makes me think of a lot of these individual actions going on with different farmers that had a cumulative effect, up to and including a lot of dust blowing into Washington, D.C., which was famously the originator of the Soil Conservation Service. And that uh, makes me start thinking about concepts like panarchy. We've talked about panarchy on the podcast before, Dr. Allen, but as someone who's very familiar with the, the concept and has worked quite extensively with it, How would you describe the concept of panarchy?
2: I would describe, panarchy, we think sort of underlies resilience, the model of panarchy. And and panarchy is simply a a, a characterization, a framework for understanding complex adaptive systems that's based on hierarchy. But hierarchies are generally top-down control. And with panarchy, control can be top-down or bottom-up. The insect example, Collapsing a system is one of those examples of a, a bottom-up collapse of a system. and We see that quite frequently. There's more to panarchy, too, of course. There's the idea that uh, dynamics are sort of in systems or scale-specific, so each level in a panarchy is a hierarchy, but it corresponds to a scale in ecological systems and that scaling structure of ecological systems does a lot in terms of um, conveying resilience to the system. It also uh, (coughs) allows us ways to analyze the resilience of the systems because it turns out that ecological functions are non-randomly distributed within and across scales. So panarchy helped us get to those ideas. Turns out that ecological function tends to be diverse within a range of scale, and redundant across scales. So if you have a small insectivore, you also have a Mm mid-sized one and a large one. Previously, people have just called those redundant functions, which is rather dangerous because uh, an ant disperses seeds, but not very far. A bird disperses seeds like cedar, and -hmm. it may be miles. So it's the same function that is occurring at a different scale. So what that provides is a wondrous um, control on the kind of disturbances that may scale up, like insect outbreaks. And so as, a, as controls a, a lower level scale in the system, like small birds predating upon uh, spruce budworms, when spruce budworms get too numerous and escape that individual level predation, budworms sort of aggregate at the um, branch level they become a larger scale aggregated resource and larger animals from larger areas or farther areas come and start exploiting that resource too. So it's a really nice sort of cross-scale reinforcement structure of, of function rather than just redundancy in the system. Mm-hmm. The other aspect of panarchy of course is that there's dynamics at each scale in these systems. The dynamics are one of adaptive cycles. And adaptive cycles are simply, you know, the easy way to sort of characterize it. Not entirely accurate, of course, is that it's sort of successional dynamics that systems um, begin. There's scramble competition and organization rapidly. Then you get maturity and growth and biomass and capital is locked up. When that happens, you you start to get a little more fragile, if you will, and likely for a collapse. Could be a fire, could be an insect outbreak or something else, and then the system resets. And it's during that reset time where you can introduce novelty-like invasive species
1: into these Mm -hmm. systems. Should be fairly familiar to those who have listened to our adaptive cycle. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, we've tried to cover um, a lot of these core concepts in a variety of methods. And it's really nice to hear these sort of directly from you since you have so much experience with this and, and have sort of been on the forefront of innovative ways to start teaching these materials as well, which sort of leads us to the next section we'd love to discuss, which is about sort of these massive projects that you have been working on in recent years. So specifically the NSF NRT, the graduate program that Connor and I are a part of, which is, you know, this um, interdisciplinary uh, graduate program that allows people from different disciplinary backgrounds to come together, do their graduate work, but in a way where everyone is focusing on resilience from different perspectives and collaborating with one another to solve, you know, innovative projects, innovative problems. That's what this podcast and the CRE in general grew out of. Um, and then also CRAWL, which is sort of the newer massive project that you've been working on. And both of these, particularly, of course, the NRT, have a really strong education focus and sort of dissemination of these topics to wider and wider audiences, both graduate, professional and general. Um, and so we would love to hear a little bit more about what, you know, drove you to s- not switch focus, but to move more into this education and, and dissemination realm?
2: Well, I think one thing I and others noticed is is in ecology, at least sort of a lack of teaching basic theory. Mm. So people get lots of facts, a lot of methods, especially in wildlife, um, a lot of tools to do things. Less so a, a good survey of theories out there that organize how we think the world works. And, and as I stated earlier, I think without theory, everything we do in management is idiosyncratic. We can't recognize patterns across systems.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so theory is really critical, and the practice is critical too to test the theories. And so we we wanted something that would provide graduate students um, learning of, of of what at the time, especially when we got the Iger um, ten years ago now, was still rather novel and uh, a poorly or relatively poorly known, but advancing rapidly. And in fact, at the time we were told that, you know, NSF would never fund something mm-hmm. as, as far out as resilience ideas, but they did and, you know, and, and uh, it's been embraced. In fact, you see resilience now in almost every federal RFP. So seeing that sea change yeah. has been absolutely stunning. Um, NRT, we, we enjoyed the, the Eiger quite a lot. And I, I think one lesson we learned from it is that it takes about three years to have any idea what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the grants are over. So, so we followed up with an NRT, which is related, but a little more panarchy focused. Um, and and a, in the same situation, I was told repeatedly that NSF will never fund panarchy. And yet here we are. With a, a more or less a panarchy focused um, NRT program, and and both those programs have been wonderful. I think we we've supported the uh, research careers and the degrees of something like fifty students, and, and both those programs do have an emphasis on on recruiting um, lesser represented groups. We've been successful. For in, in that, especially lately, and and so it's been very good to a you know be a part of of allowing opportunities to people, you know it's really nice to be able to provide people funding and and um, and, and it, it just feels good, and um, and it's been nice. The, the one thing we did with both those programs most many IGURTs and NRTs are very idiosyncratic across the nation. Many support students only for one year. So students come Mm -hmm. in for a quick nexus to look at concepts, they get paid by the NRT that year, and then they go on to their normal degree and hopefully incorporate that year. We decided to do something different, which was support students for longer and require that their dissertations have an actual nexus with resilience, either Fully focused on resilience or a chapter on resilience. And I think that's really helped um, get resilience papers out. It's helped get uh, Nebraska on the map a little bit um, for resilience. As you know, we're we're well known for agricultural work. Um, Resilience work is something a little more incipient here, which uh, that observation is what led to the creation of the Center for Resilience in Agricultural Working Landscapes. The fact that we had really good um, agricultural expertise, but well, there's clear issues in agriculture that transcend sort of reductionist approaches and approaches to just improving a uh, yield and productivity. There's also the potential for these systems to be rapidly degraded—a term we call call collapse sometimes, but you know for our purposes you can think of uh, incidents such as the dust bowl yeah. and in fact civilization history of civilization is rife with examples of societies that have failed because of agricultural collapses either because of climate change or drought or water logging through um due to tree removal or a number of other situations so we decided to sort of marry if you will those two concepts and focus on um, resilience and working landscape, which is a niche that there are a few resilient centers around the world and and it's still uh, the link to agriculture is one that's not well filled. So we're hoping to fill that niche and, and provide useful, useful work for um, to support agriculture and more importantly, the resilience of agricultural systems across the world.
1: Fascinating. Well, speaking of agriculture, I'm pulling this directly from the CRAWL website, but agricultural production, again, per per the website, must increase more than 70% by 2050 to meet the increasing global demand for food, fuel, and fiber. Meeting this goal will require agricultural intensification and more efficient use of marginal lands while contending with a suite of complex and interacting drivers of global change, including extreme weather, soil degradation, and biological invasions. Sustainable intensification of agriculture is a grand challenge for humanity that will require fostering resilient working landscapes and transforming landscapes that are currently in undesirable states. It's very, and embodies some very grandiose, uh, very ambitious ideas. So how does CRAWL help us to address this issue as sustainability in agriculture and, and promoting that resilience?
2: Well, we're doing a a number of things. And and one is um, on a smaller scale, we're working with ranchers in the Sandhills to implement adaptive management practices. And adaptive management practices um, are are sort of uh, designed around the challenges that ranchers see on their property. And those challenges have included, not surprisingly, the incursion of more and more invasive species, including red cedar. One of the challenges in the Sandhills is there is some cultural and and warranted cultural fear of fire up there. And Sandhills have been a very interesting um, situation for me because I believe ranchers have very much recognized that the Sandhills are potentially fragile, Potentially have a tipping point. And so they have worked for years to avoid that tipping point. The tipping point they've been trying to avoid is that of moving sands. Mm-hmm. The sands used to have, the sandhills used to have blowouts, are one endemic or near endemic species in Nebraska. These uh, blowout pensimen is restricted to these blowouts, but the blowouts are viewed as poorly managed rangeland. They're patches of sand and they can spread. And so managers and ranchers have worked like um, crazy to eliminate blowouts. And in fact, pensiman, uh, blowout pensiman is endangered because they mm. manage so well. So it's, it's very interesting that ranchers have seen this tipping point. Right. They backed away from it very right. carefully. I mean, that's a it's a lesson from resilience. If you can recognize a critical tipping point, and manage away from it. But it feels to me like while eyes were front and forward to moving sand, we sort of backed into a situation where through the back door, we have tree incursion, different problems. So while we're trying to manage one problem, another one popped up. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a fascinating dynamic and uh, I think very interesting.
0: Yeah, that's really neat. And I think that's something that we've tried to, um, something you just said reminds me of a point that we try to drive home in this podcast, which is that, you don't necessarily need even to, to know the terms around ecological resilience to witness it and apply it in your own life. It is a, in some ways, it's a framework. That's one part of ecological resilience theory, right? And the idea that you were talking about where these landowners, these ranchers have recognized and then backed away from what they saw as an undesirable alternative stable state change is such a great example of this is putting language to a phenomenon that humans are inherently aware of at some level rather than it being at this purely academic uh, framework. Yeah. So I yeah. think that's a really nice illustration of that.
2: Uh, another thing we've we've just gotten started on on AG and resilience is uh, just um, very recently we, We're awarded some, I think it was mentioned early on, DICE's funding Mm -hmm. from NSF. Mm -hmm. This is to create a network of networks. So what we're doing is creating a resilience research network that includes the uh, US, um, USDA long-term agricultural research site program. So 18 enormous research sites for ag across the nation. Ag Canada's living laboratories program And McGill University, Elena Bennett's um, ResNet, which looks Mm -hmm. at ecosystem services and ag across 10 sites in Canada, and as well with Mexico, so that we will now have, and we just created the working group, have a uh, North American wide resilience research network. We're just standing that up. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's fantastic.
1: and just a bit of a shameless plug, if anyone's interested uh, about Dr. Bennett's work, she was one of our first interviewees on this podcast, so I encourage yeah, you to take perfect. a listen. Yeah,
0: it's a really good episode if we do so so ourselves. And so, she, she is
2: a co-PI on this Dyson's grant, actually. She's doing some wonderful work.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and pull directly from the crawl website again The center includes institutions and non-governmental organizations with a stake in maintaining productive and resilient food, energy, water, and ecosystem services, otherwise known as FUSE landscapes, with an emphasis on the North Central Great Plains of the United States, one of the world's most productive agricultural regions. First off, I'd like to ask Dr. Allen, what organizations does CRAWL partner with for this program?
2: We Partnering is really one thing we decided not to do with, with um, Crawl is have a huge list of just people with some general interest. So we have a huge list of fellows. We don't want to do that. I see that very often. So our collaborators are, are very specific, working with us on, on manuscripts, publications, student education, or on grants. So each grant has a, a different suite of cooperators and, and and for example, the uh, DICES in, includes Ag Canada, um, McGill University, uh, uh, institutions in Mexico, and ElTars and across the U.S. Um, there's an EPSCOR grant, too, looking at um, um, predictors of spatial regime changes, and that includes um, folks here in Nebraska, but also colleagues in uh, Montana who are social scientists primarily working on this problem, too, because it is a social ecological challenge. So those groups vary over time and who we're working with and what projects. For example, Barda Brothers Adaptive Management has uh, uh, NGOs involved. Um, ranging from the Nature's Conservancy to the Sandhills Task Force, also agencies such as uh, USDA and the Forest Service and Gateman Parks Commission, and probably several others that I'm not remembering.
1: Well, that's a, quite a few partnerships, Dr. Allen. Um, one question just for the sake of our listeners I'd like to ask is what an LTAR is.
2: LTAR is a USDA program. It was um, mirrored after the LTER, and, and LTER is long-term eco- ecological research sites. So LTAR is funded by NSF. LTAR is funded by the. US Department of AG in partnership with land-grant universities, including University of Nebraska, and it stands for long-term agricultural research sites. We have a series of working groups that are doing really high-level, interesting uh, work. So now we've started a resilience working group, but there's um, working groups on the social side of things, spatial side of things, soils, uh, just on and on. It's a very active, uh, very interesting group and a really neat way to enhance learning because there's common experiments that are applied to LTAR sites, there's 18 of them, from Florida to to the West Coast, and so you have this huge amount of replication that's possible for rapid learning. So it's it's a it's a really neat program that holds a lot of progress.
1: Very cool,
0: yes. cool. Uh, Dr. Allen. A little bit a little bit earlier, you had uh, well, we had mentioned from the Crawl website that agricultural production, you know, by 2050 has to increase in and you know, yield and efficiency in all of these uh, concepts, where does resilience play into the ideas of efficiency and production in this?
2: That's a interesting question, thank you. Um, I, I first, let me give a sort of a, a, a lay definition of resilience. You asked me for a more mm-hmm. technical one earlier, mm-hmm. but especially in sort of Resource management, which we could include agriculture as a kind of resource management. Many approaches focus purely on efficiency and, and taken to extreme efficiency, uh, merges into sort of, uh, looking for maximum sustained yield. And those kind of approaches do look to maximize production under ideal conditions. So great problem is that ideal conditions almost never occur. A resilience approach is quite different. It seeks to guarantee production over a wide range of conditions. So you may give up production one year, but have consistent production over years. So what we've seen in agriculture, in my opinion, historically and currently is really the focus primarily on increasing production and efficiency and that includes creating extremely efficient pretty expensive um pretty intensive irrigated agriculture um that is the most productive agriculture in the world we're exporting it globally now too and and the potential challenge there is that kind of agriculture is pretty new. It hasn't had the test of time. Mm -hmm. And we have to balance efficiency with resilience. Why? I'll give you a couple examples. We're we're all uh, familiar with the COVID outbreak, I'm sure. (laughs) And you will be familiar with the problems we're having with supply chains right now. Mm -hmm. Global supply chains went fully the efficiency route just-in-time delivery, Mm -hmm. and that is not a resilient approach and it's failed when stressed. Another example of highly efficient and therefore inexpensive and productive uh, system would be the Texas power grid
0: that had no
2: aspects of resilience, redundancy, connection, modularity, etc. in it, and it just took a little perturbation, a couple of days of freezing weather and that came crashing down. So resilience sometimes means giving up a little, but gaining on the long-term and not having those collapses.
0: That's fantastic. And I
2: think that's important for agriculture more than anything else, because human livelihoods and food security requires us to have a consistent production of agriculture instead of agriculture that spikes year to year and is highly variable.
0: I think that we might move into some of our sort of ending, exiting questions. We have a few here. Uh, Connor, if you want to pick and choose.
1: Sure. Well, let me start off with a question that we ask all of our interviewees as we approach the end of the interview. What new work are you currently excited about? I'm very excited about this
2: um, Network of Networks project. Mm It's entire North America, got a huge number of people behind it, got some wonderful researchers involved. Um, I think it's going to be great fun. I think we'll learn a lot. It's going to be very useful. So I'm excited about that. I'm also very excited about a much smaller scale project, which is the adaptive management of BARDA. It's mm-hmm. nice to be doing something on the ground, something where we can talk about resilience and then talk about management and do experiments. You know, a shorthand uh, definition of re- uh, adaptive management, simply right. learning by doing, where management options are treated as hypotheses, but then stakeholders are the ones who create those hypotheses and are involved in the evaluation of data collection. So it really enhances learning. Pretty excited about that. Right. There's also, uh, you know, all kinds of things in the works right now, which I won't necessarily mention all (laughs) of those, but but one of them is this idea of an RFP that will be due um, in just a couple of weeks, a farm of the future, where we uh, will be establishing a farm to take advantage of all the new technology and understanding we have and talk about designing a farm in a resilient and sustainable manner and doing that in conjunction with stakeholders and having it as a learning um, location as much as not a demonstration site mm-hmm. but actually a co-learning demonstration. So that very cool. if that comes through, that would be kind of exciting as well.
0: Yeah um, very cool. Yeah. Would you be able to just describe just in brief for our listeners what Barter Brothers Ranch is and, and why that's such a, a special place in, in this context?
2: Barter Brothers Ranch is a, a university-owned ranch. Um, I believe the donation of the ranch to the university was in 1992. Um, and we've managed it ever since. Um, recently, it's, it's sort of fallen out of use a bit for, for some of um, the uh, beef production work so it's been sitting out there and, and the center for grassland studies and the center for resilience were asked to take over management or at least co-management of the ranch which we embraced and now we've implemented this um management of, of the ranch via uh, adaptive management it's a sand hills ranch mm-hmm. which means sand dunes and, and all the spectacularness of of the sand hills which includes not just the dunes, but these wet meadows and lakes in, in the swales. It's really spectacular. It also epitomizes some of the challenges It has hervasive invasive species. It has uh, red cedar coming in. It has issues with over homogenization of the grasslands. We need to reintroduce heterogeneity into it, mm-hmm. etc. It's about, if I recall correctly, about 6,000 acres. So fairly substantial and what this allows us to do within an adaptive management project is put high risk experiments like fire on public land, Mm -hmm. on the ranch, where the ranchers can observe and watch but not risk their livelihoods. And and we hope to have treatments on adjacent ranchers too, but they may shy away from those more controversial high risk ones. Mm -hmm. By having BARDA under our control means that we can do High-risk management experiments here that you could not do if your your livelihood was um, reliant upon consistent production every year.
0: Absolutely, Absolutely. Yeah, It
1: sounds like a great test case for some of these really. Oh, well, some of these That's concepts
2: is a wonderful place to stay in the middle of the sandhills.
1: Yeah, <laughs> never get out there. Well, one of the projects that you've been working on for a few years now is an updated version of the panarchy book. Uh, for listeners who might not be aware, there is uh, an entire book dedicated to the concept of panarchy that came out in oh, uh, 2001 or 2002, I believe. Two. 2002. And a sequel or perhaps an update, miraculously, has been in the works for some time. Uh, Dr. Allen, could you just talk a little bit about Panarchy 2.0, as it were?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, the Panarchy 1.0, came out of that MacArthur founding uh, Mm. for the Resilience Alliance early on and and really put all these concepts in one place. It was a a totally novel book, um, a theory of change. And um, it's worth knowing that the average scientific book nowadays sells about 300 copies. That's what's happened to publications in, sure. in the last 20 years. The panarchy, last I heard it sold 20, 30,000 copies, sort of mm. outrageous. And I remember getting on a flight to Sydney uh, one day in the 2000s and, um, Sadly, just passing through first class on my way to coach, but uh, seeing some, you know, well-dressed businessman sitting there reading panarchy theory wow. of all things. And I said, wow, this book has reach. Yeah. So, so I found that fascinating. There's been a lot of advancement, you know, like resilience. I re- recall my statement that Holling always believed that novel ideas take 30 years to, um, to gain traction, I think that I, I agree with him. I think that time frame's been sped up with increasing um, connectivity of the world uh, and the speed of information flow now. The panarchy was 20 years ago. Again, it was treated skeptically. Some still treat it skeptically, but it's. Um, increasing and increasing in its use and utility over time. And in fact, now that, as as I stated, our NRT has a panarchy focus on it, so able to get this funded by our, our traditional big national funding agencies. So we wanted to capture some of the new advances that have been made in panarchy over time. And we also wanted to get a bit away from theory. So this book is called Applied Panarchy. So while we still do talk about theory and advances in theory, we emphasize a bit more the application of, of panarchy theory to the management of complex social ecological systems. It COVID delayed our publication by a year. And um, that's probably a good thing because it, it's uh, set for publication in January of 2022, which will correspond with 20 years since the first publication of panarchy. So fantastic. So I guess okay. there's some nice balance there. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's funny you tell that the airplane anecdote because panarchy is actually the first uh, term that I ever became familiar with in ecological resilience because I, I went to the undergrad where Dr. Lance Gunderson you know, has been working. and so But the panarchy book was framed in a glass case in, our, um, in my undergrad uh, major department. And so, Yeah. And so like every day or every week I would walk past that book on display, and that was one of the first introductions I had to this stuff. (laughs) So I relate to that passing by that book in the wild and, you know, getting curious about it. So um, on that topic and with that, you know, sort of late people being introduced to ecological resilience through this, these sort of publications, through this sort of work. How do you think that our listeners can be engaged with ecological resilience in their day to day lives, even if they're not scientists or, you know, practitioners in this way?
2: Well, I think people should be aware that resilience is a, a concept that applies to all scales, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and and the choice of the term resilience by Holling was perhaps a mistake because the, the um, term had a long history in, in medicine and psychology mm-hmm. in that term in those fields really refers to bounce back. So if you have trauma, how quickly do you respond to a, an emotional stable state? How much, how quickly do you return to it? But I have argued and, and published that even things like mental health can be thought of as alternative stable states. Um, for example, somebody with bipolar disorder is absolutely a different state, chemical state of the brain and perception of the world. It's very interesting, too, that we can treat these kind of um, mental health issues with with drugs that mimic the healthy state. Mm -hmm. That's all they do. And we see this in natural systems, too. We call this coerced resilience, where the minute you let go of that Propping up the system, it's going to drop back. So, so if you get off your meds with schizophrenia, you quickly fall back into schizophrenia. If you're managing a grassland that's surrounded by a sea of cedar trees, all the pressure in the system is pushing it back to cedar. So, we can maintain a grassland, but it's entirely coerced. There is no natural process to maintain it. So, it's a a concept that I think. is important, this idea of coerced resilience and and we see that commonly. But so for for people, I think, you know, resilience is is something people naturally know about, right? I hear yeah. it on the television all the time. They yeah. they often think about it in that bounce back term. But but the bounce back aspect of it really is ninety percent of, of response to most disturbances. I, I think inherently people are aware that being resilient is is generally a good thing where we need to get is to people to understand the deeper ideas behind resilience the idea that that a schizophrenic state of a person can be highly resilient simply meaning it's hard to change that person out of that state mm-hmm. and and so these kind of application or these kind of terms of applications from you know individuals to communities to cities and 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 to the biosphere.
1: Well, we tend to end the show by pointing out places where we find resilience in the news. Something we actually shamelessly took from our resilience course with you, Dr. Allen. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. wanted to ask you if you just happened to catch any examples of resilience in the news uh, on your end lately Dr. Allen?
2: Oh, now you put me on the spot when I'm usually <laughs> the one who asks that question. That's a not little really bit of, fair. a
1: little bit of payback. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm tr- you know
0: yeah. uh, I think
2: every time we hear about another tropical storm coming, which we have a couple in the Gulf right now, the concern is for coastal resilience and disaster resilience. So that's a place Mm. we see that frequently. Also frequently, and I'm not sure in the last couple of days, but um, anytime there's a traumatic event, whether it be, um, disaster or war or or something else. Uh, The concern is for the the resilience of the participants there. And, And again, usually they're thinking about, you know, quickly rebounding. But and I think, you know, our dealing with some of these issues of resilience will be much better if people understand the full depth of the theory that bounce back is not always possible, that there's more to it that you can flip in an alternative state whether you're a human or a farming community that falls into a poverty trap or a larger scale system as well
0: yeah absolutely i think that's so much why we we liked the idea from your course and brought it into the podcast is because it just provides almost like a mental exercise for us and hopefully for listeners to see where it exists in their day-to-day life and and use that as a a structuring framework for problem solving and that sort of thing so i
2: i do watch um pbs news every Mm -hmm. evening and and one of their sponsors is and i won't mention the sponsor is um is all about a a resilient and verdant earth
0: oh wow (laughs) yeah it's it's uh it's very neat to see this work that you guys have been doing for you know before we were grad students all that sort of thing really coming kind of to the forefront of a lot of conversations and and, and even policy and research and stuff like that. So it, really it, you know from that
2: per- perspective has been very interesting because yeah. early on in the in beginning way early in the Resilience Alliance there's a social scientist slash anthropologist John Parker embedded in the Resilience Alliance, and so he says this is one of the few cases in history where a novel scientific idea has been followed from its inception through Uh, its explosion out into uh into the wild if you will so like one could write a a, papers
0: yeah like one could write really a a comprehensive history of of this process that's really cool well thank you so much for being willing to speak with us and for being on on what the heck is resilience anyway
2: no problem it's always fun or it is fun
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much dr allen it was great having you on the pad- podcast yeah and this uh, brings us to the end of the podcast now so uh, until next time i'm connor i'm julie and thank and you for listening
0: to what the heck is resilience anyway
1: whra thanks
0: bye, bye.